Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast that seeks to fill the gap in the podcast markets for discussion about big current affairs, topical issues from a kind of Christian, apologetic, theological, um, philosophical and banterous kind of point of view. Uh, and I'm joined as ever by Andy Bannister, Aaron Edwards, and I am still Michael Lotz. I haven't changed my identity uh, in the last week. Shocking. Uh, yeah, shocking, given what we were talking about last week, but I still identify as Michael Lotz. Um, and actually, just to, before we get started, just to say this is actually episode 16, believe it or not, gentlemen, we've actually been going for 16, 16 weeks. 16 episodes, that's amazing. That's uh, Wow. So, and, um, and I've just been reliably informed uh, that we've had uh, a thousand different people listen to the podcast so far. So, um, um, Andy told you that. You said reliably informed, but... I'm an ev- well, yeah, being an evangelist, we have a tendency to exaggerate things. So maybe it's only a hundred. No, it is. It is. It was about, it's about nine hundred and something, which yeah. is uh, which is it's, unless it's the same person with nine hundred different addresses and IP <laughs> addresses and things, which is not impossible. But yeah. you, know, you do have a lot of computers there, Andy. Your background, you've got to... <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's all my it's it's all my friends and family and neighbours. <laughs> it's not as we might say evangelistic counting then. Right. <laughs> yeah. What you did there. Um, but anyway, just to say, if you are enjoying the podcast, there are two things that we would love you to do. Um, firstly, we would love you to tell other people about the podcast, because if you're finding it helpful, enjoyable and stimulating for your, your thoughts and conversations with others, um, there may be others with too. So don't, why not uh, drop them a message, let them know about it, um, share, um, and obviously make sure you subscribe yourself. Um, but also, if you'd like to support the podcast, obviously it doesn't cost a fortune to run a podcast, but it does cost something. And it would be great if you would want to support us um, just a small amount per month. Uh, and that will help us to uh, continue to do what we do. Maybe even have some live episodes where we're actually in the same place rather than different parts okay. of the country. I want um, to add to what you said there, Michael. You said if you're enjoying the show. I want to say if you're not enjoying the show, if you're listening to this and we just yeah. wind you up, can you still share it with your friends? Tell all <laughs> of your friends that because it's a really annoying show where the, where the people there are always annoyingly annoyingly right or whatever and, uh, and stuff. So we don't mind whether you like the show or don't like the show. Just, just tell people. To be yeah. fair, it'll probably actually get more listens because if you say to people, I really disagree with this, it's really controversial. It's probably going to be more intriguing to people. So yeah. I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you. <laughs> I'm talking about where we are. Um, uh, for, for our listeners who don't know where we're based, Aaron, where, tell us about where you are on this lovely, gorgeous summer's day. Yeah, I, I need to be. I, let's let's do a short episode. I want to go outside because it's sunny in sunny Derbyshire. I'm at, I'm at, uh, at Cliff College where I work, and uh, it's sunny Derbyshire. Weather check. I showed, I showed you my view from my office window earlier, which does look very. Yeah. Um, Andy, where's where's your? Uh, I'm uh, I'm in Dundee, uh, in Scotland, one of the most beautiful parts of the country. And of course, you can't see this, uh, listeners. But if I look at my window, I can see herds of wildebeest sweeping majestically across the plain, glistening <laughs> snow-capped mountains, the Hanging Garden of Babylon. Uh, you know, it's all out my window. That's amazing. Right. Shame yeah. you can't see. Okay. I, I see what you mean, Aaron, about the reliably informed. Well, there you are. I think that's just Andy's. Andy's been a sort of victim of the Scottish nationalism propaganda. Everyone moved to Scotland, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm wearing blue, so you know, that's true. Yeah, yeah. this is a nice um, collector's item for Michael to be hosting, of course, this week. Uh, yes, know. it is because uh, well, it's very exciting. I'm not actually not actually at home this week. Um, I am uh, currently looking out over the gorgeous Yorkshire Dales um, from the study window of Roger Carswell. Um, so there you go. Roger gets into the the podcast, fellow evangelist. Uh, so I'm sitting he's waiting for that. All, all the books he's published, he's been thinking, when can I get on Pod of the Gaps? Either, exactly. Can I get a mention? His life is yeah, now, he's now, life now complete. If he retires tomorrow, it was our fault. Uh, but a big shout out to Roger because whilst we were chatting in the kind of pre pre show chat, um, he did wait on me with bacon and eggs. 
He's and, younger and, than I imagined, though, looking at the, the what I saw on the screen there. Mm. Was that not his son? No, actually, sorry. No, that's um, that's his uh, nephew. I was going to say, well, that was like, like, a, older than that, that was like a 14-year-old yeah. who came in. It's, like it's, it's the air in Yorkshire. You know, Yorkshire people are always going on about, their, you know, it's just, it just keeps you young. My, uh, my grandfather was from, from Yorkshire. One thing I learned from that was, you know, you should never ask somebody if they're from Yorkshire. Never ask them. You, tell them, you know why? Never ask someone if they're from Yorkshire, because if they're not, you will have humiliated them hugely. And if they are, they'll tell you within 30 seconds anyway. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to think of some way of getting from Yorkshire to our current topic, but I can't. So I'll just tell you what our topic is for this week. This week, we are thinking about how can we destroy a denomination or how to destroy. We're not personally wanting to do it. Speak <laughs> for yourself. Um, yeah. I should also add that we're not talking about kind of destroying the £20 notes, but we're talking about kind of <laughs> Christian denominations of the church. Um, and although obviously this, sorry, Andy, I made Andy laugh. That was, that quite was good. really good. That was that was. Yeah. Uh, carry on. Um, but uh, but as, as we said before, obviously these episodes we try and make them a little bit timeless, so we won't just kind of talk about stuff that is only um, relevant to this week. But actually, as we speak, there has been a big incident, event in the history of the Methodist Church this week, and and this is kind of why we kind of got motivated maybe to speak about it at this moment in time. So, Aaron, tell us what's been happening in the Methodist Church. You kind of have links to that um, and know about that. Tell us um, what's happening and why is that so significant? Yeah, thanks. So, well, I, I have to be careful how I, how I speak. I am, I'm here on Methodist ground right now. Some would say holy, some would say it's unholy ground, uh, depending on the uh, events of the last week. Um, so I'm not myself a Methodist, though I, I certainly, as as many evangelicals would see myself as um, hearkening back to the the origins of Methodism and the Great Awakening movement as being really important and mm. significant in all sorts of ways. Um, and I think you know, so, so the college that I work at is is affiliated uh, with Methodism, though we're not. You know, we have many different kinds of students and 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 many staff members who are not um, not Methodist. But in the last week. Um, Methodism as a denomination in, in Britain uh, decided to uh, essentially make sacred um, same-sex marriages. Um, not only, by the way, same-sex marriages, but also cohabitation and uh, and a few other things. And this has been in the works for a while. It's been discussed and debated for years. And this was sort of inevitable. We all knew this was coming. But it does have significant public implications, um, how people are perceiving the church at large. It sets a precedent for other denominations and other churches to go, oh look, the Methodists have done this. Um, there's a precedent. Therefore, mm. it's possible. I can mm. I can very well see this being spoken of in Parliament. Mm. Congratulations mm. to Methodism at last. When mm. is the Church of England gonna gonna come and um, catch up? And now Methodism has caught up with where um, contemporary society is. So basically, that's the issue. And and the, the interesting thing is, um, the main reason um, Methodism. One of the main reasons I, I've observed the debates over the years about the conference they have the annual conference that's what's just happened this this uh, past week um and it's interesting to see it over the last three years the way that respondents have come in and, and spoken about the issue it's been such an emotive debate in, in just exactly the way it is in culture uh, you you know you you people are given a sort of segment of a couple of minutes to say their piece at these conferences and you'll often get sort of 15 people in a row talking about how amazed and delighted and so 
overwhelmed with emotion they are that they're finally allowed to speak about this and the church is even considering this is amazing and then you'll get some um older conservative evangelical within methodism's ranks standing up and giving a kind of three-point propositional uh response you know as to why this is unbiblical and wrong and uh, why we shouldn't do this and it was really a mismatched debate all the way through you could tell what was always going to happen the wave of emotion was always going to win out um, which was a shame. But the biggest draw for the Methodist Church has been this is going to help them evangelistically, which I found wow. quite interesting. That this will be good because we're catching up with Doug and the world. And there's so many of these people, it's inevitable that, that we need to start saying that love is love and that God loves mm-hmm. love. Therefore, mm-hmm. wherever love is found between human beings and it's not coercive, mm-hmm. we must bless this and, and say mm-hmm. this is good. They do obviously reserve the right for people to disagree, for evangelical views and that's part of the whole debate has been how do we how do they stay together in unison basically mm. now i want to come back to what you said mm. particularly in terms of like the driving kind of the spoken driving force being like evangelism we want to be communicating in a kind of palatable mm. way in our culture and so on before that though because we said this is you know this is not just kind of something that's happened this week this is part of a, a wider issue Andy, give us a kind of flavour of like what else has been happening on this over the last few years and, and why is this kind of you know a bigger issue than just for, for Methodists? Yeah, I think the, the, the bigger issue, Michael, is there have been several of the kind of, um, you know, sort of older kind of, you know, once mainstream, uh, you know, sort of uh, classic denominations, you know, either mm-hmm. taking sort of, you know, little sort of dabbly steps in this direction or going, you know, helter-skelter down the mudslide. I mean, just as a side with a Methodist, one of the things that boggles my mind, of course, is, you know, is Methodism was founded by the likes of kind of the Wesleys and, Whit- and Whitfield and all those kind of guys. And I found myself thinking, you know, the the, the, the Methodist church could probably actually save a fortune right now on its electricity bills by just dropping a dynamo into John Wesley's grave and be giving <laughs> power every, you know, Methodist church uh, still remaining in, in England, all sort of nine of them. Um, but here in Scotland, where I, I live, this is particularly also news because the, the Church of Scotland had their uh, their big annual conference. It's amazing how much theological theological damage happens at annual church conferences. Maybe if we just abolish those, that <laughs> actually would solve half the problem. Um, but at their um, kind of annual sort of uh, sort of church uh, general meeting this year, they there's been a move to uh, endorse. Uh, same-sex marriage has been proposed now that what that happens is that now goes off into be talked about in all the sort of lower levels of the of the, of the bureaucracy and the presbyteries and so forth and then at next year's conference I understand there'll be then a formal motion uh, put forward and so in a sense we're kind of one year away from that and i think anybody who's watching the way the wind is going thinks it's probably likely to go the same way as as the methodists um one thing i find interesting maybe we could talk about this is how it often tends to be you know these 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 smaller kind of dying congregations i mean to go there are some church scotland churches that are doing okay but most of them are in a death spiral circling the drain uh, the same would apply to the methodists with 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 respect and i think on the one hand you know, we can talk about the evangelism piece in a minute but i also wonder if there's a sort of desperation of going man we have to do something because yeah. we're not going to be here and so if we just if we just look like the culture if we paint ourselves spray paint ourselves rainbow and go hey look we're all right we look just like you that somehow we'll, we'll, we'll stop the rot and then the other one of course michael is the um I think there were some broader concerns about the Anglican Church, which has been having conversations about this for a long time. And obviously there's huge pressure from, um, I hesitate to use the word progressives, because I don't use the word progressive, it implies that you're progressing somewhere. And I'm not sure there is a destination, but for want of a better word, that kind of wing uh, of the church who, who want to drag it uh, in the in the same 
direction. But yeah, it tends to be yeah. these these older denominations, and particularly in the West. So that's yes, another issue we could talk about maybe going forward. These churches often have a global presence, but the global ones are often ignored. It's interesting British Methodism and. Um, Yes, if you can hear that in the background, by the way, that was a plane just going by very low through the Yorkshire Dales, just as Andy was finishing. Keeping off. tabs on you, Michael. Yeah, I think it's my wife. Yeah, she's uh, she's wondering why I'm not at home. Uh, <clears throat> but that's really helpful, just to kind of give us a context. This is a bigger issue that's been happening um, uh, on a wider scale um, than just the Methodist Church. Um, I guess if I was to play, if, if I if I can to an extent, to play devil's advocate here, say, okay, but 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 why is this such an issue? Um, like, I mean, for a start, like, if we do want to to reach our culture, like, who already think we're homophobic, then, like, making a big issue of this and, like, you know, saying that this is wrong, just reinforcing people's stereotypes about evangelicals, you know, surely, like, we can just let this go. Like, if someone was to say that, yeah. why why is this an issue? Why do we think this is well, worse? Shall I have a go as an evangelist and then perhaps Aaron yeah. goes as a theologian? Does that... Does that work? Well, I guess we're both about evangelists. And well, no, I went very long, but I thought I'd leave you to yeah. do the, the theological piece on that. Oh, go for it. Go for it. But practically speaking, my I suppose I have a couple of issues. One is that um, as somebody who spends their time, Michael, like you do on the coalface, talking to people, I don't think this is as big as issue out there as people think it is. It comes up sometimes, but it's not a huge question. I get on university campuses. In fact, actually, I run across a lot of students now. I think you've been deeply damaged by the so-called sexual revolution. You've been sold this myth that you can do what you want with with whom you want, whenever you want, no restraints. Um, and actually, this will bring you happiness and fulfillment. Actually, it hasn't. So I, I think this is almost like responding to a cultural moment that was maybe 10, 15 <laughs> years ago, actually. Um Secondly, my question would be, um, you know, absolutely there have been times where Christians have, have been, I think, you know, heavy footed on this, that if we've led with this issue, you know, if the first thing that someone who's not a Christian hears us saying is, oh, by the way, here's our view on sexuality. Yeah. And I absolutely I think it's an issue. And I think sometimes the way the church has dealt with the gay marriage discussion, we have accidentally put the moral cart before the gospel mm-hmm. horse. Yeah. But rather than, you know, shoot the horse, set fire to the car and use it to cook what remains of the horse and make Swedish sausage. Um, maybe an alternative to go, maybe we need to think about how we communicate. And there's a great examples of how to do that. There's great books and resources. Uh, we've mentioned before the work of folks like Living Out, who's, you know, the, the Christian men and women involved in that movement who are same-sex attracted but living biblically faithful lives. I think they've got a lot to contribute to that discussion. And then thirdly, I suppose, if I was to be devil's advocate, I'd say, well, if our playbook is, here's a difficult issue but the, the, where the culture doesn't understand the church, Okay, let's just throw out what we believe. So the cross is a stumbling block to Muslims. You're right. Let's get rid of it. Let's just eliminate the cross. Um, job done. Um, the exclusivity of Christ. We live in a very pluralistic age. I get lots of, asked lots of questions around, well, do you think all religions lead to God? Well, again, rather than engage with that, let's just throw the exclusivity of Christ out and go, absolutely. Uh, there's no whatever. So my question is, why, why stop? there and then the issue of sexuality one of the biggest issues i would say around there is also that lots of people think the church is anti-fun and anti-sex because you know the view we take on things like pornography would we'll, we'll do a show on that at some point i imagine so again why not say you know what porn is okay it's only an image it's only in your head you're not actually committing adultery so that's fine you know you can do whatever you want because god just loves pleasure so my question is why just pick this one issue uh, it's a it's a ludicrous human hermeneutic and i think mm. it's spoken by people who haven't got the first clue what evangelism looks like um mm. not that i want not that i'm being direct or anything here yeah. <laughs> yeah it's interesting the you know methodism obviously has only recently 
reclaimed the word evangelism. There was there was a, an article a couple of years ago um, in the Methodist Recorder, the newspaper, um, which we sometimes have to write uh, things for, and it's interesting. Yeah, one of them was literally the title of the, the article was "Reclaiming the Word Evangelism." You think, goodness me, if John Wesley could read that, why did it? Why did we have to reclaim it? Because for many years, progressives have been saying evangelism is imperialist, it's colonial, it's something that belongs to the past, to a time where we were exclusivist in our way of thinking. Mm. Now, Methodism has realised that its numbers are very low. It had a, a low number count. Twenty seventeen, the numbers in the British Methodist mm. Church membership was one hundred eighty eight thousand, which was very, very, which was a wake up call. Mm. Um, and since then, the numbers have continued to dwindle, and they know that they're on a particular trajectory. Mm. So, for some reason, so that's partly why they're going right. We need to capture the younger generations. How are we going to do that? What's the big issue? What's the stumbling block? Mm-hmm. Well, here they'll come in, and it's it, it's the, for me. I, I've been saying this in any forum. I've been able to say it over the last few years. It's completely ludicrous uh, to say that because it's not as though there's all these young people in Britain going, I just really desperately want to get to a Methodist chapel on stuff. So if only they were uh, happy to accept uh, gay marriage, I'd be there. I'd, I'd be there every week and I'd be giving my life to Jesus and singing the four hymn sandwich. And, and I just think it's a really uh, crazy way of thinking. But it, you can see how it's following on off the coattails of, of the public discussion. So it was... It would have been, I think, the famous phrase in uh, the debate in the House of Parliament where David Cameron a few years ago, there was that that call for the church to catch up. Like, yes, I think the church needs to catch up with us on this issue. Um, and so it's interesting that Methodism taken the first step in doing so. In answer more specifically to your question, Michael, on the issue of um, why does this matter? Because, of course, yeah, there's ways that we can say, yes, we care about this, this issue, but we're not going to die on this hill. We're going to emphasize other things. Let's emphasize the love of God. We can stay conservative on this issue. Let's just not go to town on it. And I think it's, you know, I, I recently wrote a, um, if I can do a little mini plug for my blog here, I did a, a, an article called Hills on Which the Church Will Die on my uh, That Good Fight blog, where I talked about this because I think there's an issue in which we're worried about dying on hills because we think we th- we think we're obscuring the gospel. We're, we're we're putting things in the way of the gospel. The love of God. It's about the good news. So why are you making it about bad news? Saying what God doesn't like. That's that's about you know, that's a classic problem. You you can't preach the good news unless people are aware that that it is good news. And why is it good news? There's a thing that there's bad news as well, and you need to counteract that with the good news. Um, and so I think being true to the bad news and on what sin is, uh, therefore homosexuality would be one of those examples. Um, you know, it, it helps accentuate the good news. It's an essential for it. And it's also a load-bearing issue for the authority of Scripture um, as well. So how do we keep proclaiming this gospel mm. if we want to reclaim the word evangelism in whatever denomination you may be in um, and, and see it fruitfully um, enacted in, in your cultural society? You need to have a clear grasp of mm. the foundations of Scripture. And, and the script, Scripture is the, the, re, is the kind of very basis for which um, you're going to proclaim your gospel. So you just can't separate them and say, hey, I, I just care about the gospel. You're, you're nitty-picky about particular things about scripture. Those things have to go together, otherwise you lose it. You lose everything. And so there's so many reasons why it's a problem. And just one, I mean, there's so many other things I'd love to say on this, but I'll let you jump back in, Michael, with your mm-hmm. devil's advocate hat on or whatever, if you wish, or any kind <laughs> of advocate hat on. Um, but I think there's a problem we have here um, I've, I've mentioned the slippery slope load-bearing issues. One thing that may seem to be a little thing is actually a big thing, a bit like Luther with indulgences. Come on, Luther, in, within the Reformation. Why do you care so much about people paying indulgences? Just a small little th- little practice of the church. 
Um, it is a bit annoying. It's not ideal, but you know, let's just get on with it and preach the gospel. He's like, no, this is actually about the gospel. This is a, it seems to be about a practice. Mm. It's actually about everything, and everything stands or falls on this issue. It looks like I'm going crazy over a particular issue, but I'm not. So, so this is like that kind of issue because I don't think people realise the extent to which this slide will occur, and and the sense in which we, we've we've been completely duped by the sort of. Um, mm. The myth, I think, of a self-righteousness. So, of course, self-righteousness has been a problem in the church. You're calling people out for their sin and, and being hypocritical towards your own, let's say, or emphasizing what God doesn't like rather than what God loves, which is you. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have this idea of the Westbrook <coughs> Church in our head. Remember the Louis Theroux documentary mm-hmm. from years ago, the God hates fags kind of people, mm-hmm. a really tiny minority of crazies. And I think so. that's been a very powerful cultural sort of cipher. I think we've sort of... Mm-hmm. Every church leader wants to not be that, and they're terrified of being seen anywhere near to being that. And so they they say things in sermons and in public statements as though we're in in danger of becoming like that. And you just think you are mad. No one is. No one is going to like do that. I just don't know anyone who speaks like that. Maybe we know a few, a small handful, but we just don't know enough for people for that to be the main issue for us to have to go mm-hmm. the other way. I, I I used to find you know when that was a kind of thing and people were aware of the kind of God hates fags kind of church in America, um, and people would kind of see that as kind of prototypical of like what evangelicals are. Mm. And I, I just say to them, do you, do you know how many like people go to that church? And it was like it was less than a hundred. Yeah, it was, it was a small amount. I said, do you know how many evangelicals there are in the USA alone? <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Like, do you know what percentage that is? It's like not point not 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 not. It's like you're taking this tiny tiny little example, and then you're making it so. But you're right. Like as Christians, we can be fearful that like that has become the the image, and and maybe actually that isn't uh, what people are necessarily thinking. But you mentioned the authority of scripture. I think it's good to pick up on this because um, you're saying this is why this is important. But I guess again, if I'm playing devil's advocate, um, you could say, well, actually no. But those who are seeking to bring in uh, or accept gay marriage um, would argue for this from scripture. So, so they're not simply just saying like, let's ignore the Bible completely. It's not as simple as that. It's actually saying, no, actually we've looked at scripture and we think like, actually this isn't the issue that you've made it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done that on other things. You know, we used to think that you should wear hats and we used to think that, you know, women couldn't preach and that kind of stuff. And we've come to understand that like, actually we need to re re reread scripture with a kind of you know cultural understanding mm-hmm. and so on. So how would you come back on that? Well, yeah, go on, Aaron. About, Aaron yeah, I'll give, yeah, Andy, Andy, you might give a more nuanced uh, mediating position. I don't know. Because actually, I that's the really interesting. I don't do nuance. You, know you, don't do, you don't do that. You lost it when you crossed the border. Uh, yeah. Oh, hi, yes. <laughs> you go first. Go on, Aaron. If any of those thousand listeners were in Scotland, we also just lost them. But yeah. Well, they're all Andy. It's all Andy in his in his back room with all his many computers. He, he's yeah. our listenership. That's anyway, fine. so no, I... I um, what was the, even the question? Oh, yeah, it was. Um, no, what was it? <laughs> so you you mocked me. This is judgment, my friend. You've mocked me, and the result is you've lost the track. It's all right. I've got off. <laughs> Can I remember what my question is? The question is like those who would seek to argue, say, for instance, maybe within the Methodist Church that gay marriage is okay, aren't necessarily just saying, "Look, let's throw the Bible out and go." Oh, sorry, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Yeah. yeah. We've done this before. Yeah, we've done this before with other stuff. Okay, so that's interesting. So you're, yeah, I I would. My my position would be you've come back with a kind of haven't we done this? um, That you know, this almost this is what Steve Chalk actually argues. By the way, 
this is his argument. We've been wrong on women. We've been wrong on race. We've been wrong on slavery and these sorts of things. And so we, we can be just as wrong on this as though the church has always um, believed something. And then we, you know, and then and then we kind of went awry, and now we've recovered what the church had kind of originally believed, or something. When actually, so many of the egalitarian reforms uh, in inverted commas in the church have been precisely the same thing. So in other context, I mean, yeah, I, I've been arguing this in other contexts as well in relation to how we've seen the the lack of the distinction between men and women and and God's wisdom in it. We for too long we've apologised to the culture on this as well. Um, and, and it's difficult. I know it's challenging when you work this out. It still comes out in the wash. You know, women have been terribly um, undermined uh, in the church. In the same, but in the, you know, in the same way, um, gay people have been maligned as though they're worse sinners than others. This kind of thing. And so, it's, how do we respond to that issue? And I think too many church leaders and denominational leaders have been um, just worried about how that would come across. It's just so embarrassing to tell a woman that she can't lead a church. Or preach. We get somewhere they're like, oh, we 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 hold on to the one Timothy three about women can't be elders, but we um, we're happy to give away one Timothy two because I don't really know. Um, so they, you know, assuming that those two won't come together at some point. So it's interesting. I actually agree. We have already done this with scripture on other issues, and and that, that and it's actually symptomatic. So so getting to same sex marriage is not an accident. It's actually a kind of our lack of kind of adherence to scriptural principles on other things has come out. The one thing, you know, there are, there are nuances we could talk about with head coverings, of course, because mm-hmm. hardly any churches would follow that to the letter. And there, But there are reasonable, you know, exegetical discussions you could have as to how that points to particular uh, cultural markers, which which we still have today. There are still markers between men and women mm-hmm. in the same way there were in the, in the first century. So we're not completely fudging that by necessarily not having uh, head coverings. But, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I have respect for churches who are willing to obey scripture on that. I, do, I don't mock them and think they're crazy. I think actually mm-hmm. th- th- there's more to that, uh, to their sort of adherence there than there is to our complete flagrant disregard um, for it. Which, which mm-hmm. Yeah, so the way that people do exegetical mm-hmm. origami on women preaching is precisely the same, I think, um, for um, gay marriage. Because, in fact, you know, it's almost more explicit um, the way that those sort okay. of issues are handled. I'm going to throw this to Andy because I don't know whether Andy's going to agree with that. Maybe he's going to disagree. It's been quite fun on Pod of the Gaps. Oh, yeah. 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 I guess I would throw in my, my, my thing here, which would be to say, well, actually, like, generally, evangelicals would work together, even if we might disagree with someone's view on egalitarianism or complementarianism. Yeah. Whereas actually, we probably want to say this is a different kind of scale of issue. Um, if it comes to, you know, so for instance, kind of accepting gay marriage, we'd say yeah. that's a different level. So, I mean, Andy, what would you think? Oh gosh, well, I think I think I would I would both agree and disagree with some of what what Aaron. You could, you'd make a good Methodist, Andy. I would make a good Methodist. <laughs> Let me start with where I disagree. I, I actually think, and we I think we'll probably do a, a pod mm. gaps on this because it could be nice and sparky because we have different views on on yeah. this. I I don't think it's quite the same issue as this year around, around, around the role of women. There are some of these issues around the New Testament and how, where you have culture and and theology woven together, how yeah. you work out carefully through the exegetical issues, what the text said and what it meant and what it means today. And head coverings, which is a nice, easy one in one sense, because as Aaron said, the you know, vast majority of churches don't follow that. And it's actually quite easy to see, okay, I can see the cultural piece here women is slightly bit more complicated but i still think you can do that work the key thing is and, and aaron you said something in passing that i don't actually i don't think you meant what you 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 said if you do we have an even bigger disagreement which would be huge fun i, <laughs> I think the women thing's important 
but I don't think it goes to, to the root of scripture in quite the same way marriage does. Marriage is one of these foundational building blocks in scripture. It runs right the way through. So what the Bible has to say about marriage is not just a couple of verses in Paul. I was watching, I was, I was looking on the Methodist uh, Twitter uh, feed last night. You know, in the old days, they would wear sackcloth and ashes and beat themselves when they wanted to do penance. I read the Methodist Twitter feed and um, I read it so you don't have to. <laughs> We're going to get And I would insult, I'll insult other denominations in a moment. Um, but I was interested in some of the sort of, you know, celebratory backslapping going on there among our progressive friends. And somebody said, oh, this is so good because, you know, it's only a couple of verses in Paul that this is an issue about anyway. And I, and I wanted to read it and go, you foolish individual. <laughs> marriage goes right back to the beginning. It's built there into the way that God creates the very universe there in, and, and male and female in Genesis. <laughs> it's also, it's it's tied completely into the fact that it's the controlling metaphor for how God relates to the church, marriage. And then it works its way right through to that metaphor, then reaching fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth with a with with a, with the marriage of the of, of, of the lamb, and and so on. So this is huge, and then bang in the middle of it. And I find it interesting how my progressive friends never want to go there. They want to bang on about Paul, and they want to have fun with Leviticus. But no one goes to me to the clearest text of all, which where Jesus talks about marriage, yeah. and he takes those two verses in Genesis, one about male and female, one about marriage, and he connects them together he says you know as you've read it in the beginning it sort of says that you know god created uh human beings man a man and woman and for this reason um and he then goes to say a man will leave his family and cleave with his wife and form a new family and so so jesus is the great big elephant uh in in the room and i find it fascinating how people don't really go there like um i think we mentioned the previous show matthew vines who's a who's a pro same-sex marriage in the church writer, wrote, wrote a book that was very influential on this topic. He deals with lots of scripture passages. He largely ignores Jesus. And I find that, I find that really, really interesting. But the last thing I'd say, um, Michael, on this, I think what I would say with the very greatest respect to my friends on the other side of this debate, and I know that sometimes evangelicals, we can do this too, in which case rather than go, well, we've done it so they can do it, let's call it everyone who's doing it. There's this nasty tendency Christians have to come up with a position and then desperately start scrabbling around for a scriptural basis to justify it, or we do it theologically. And we are so good at doing it as human beings. Sometimes it's around sin. Well, the, you know, I really shouldn't be behaving this way, but here's my reason why, and I can, you know, bend a few texts to kind of make it look okay. And I think on this marriage, I genuinely do not believe that those in the Methodist church who've been advocating for this said, okay, let's just sit down with a really open mind and see what scripture says. And we'll study it really hard. We'll bring in the best experts who thought on this and wrestled on this on both sides. And we'll dig into the text and then we'll come to our conclusion and we'll ground it in scripture. No, let's be honest. They went for a position in the light of culture and then, and then there are some, and I, I, lots of people aren't even bothering to do this bit, but there are some who at least got some modicum of decency. They go, well, let's try and find a passage or two to justify it. And I think it's very dangerous. And, he, and evangelicals, we could do this too. And we need to be so careful that we don't invent our position and then use scripture to, to back it up. We surely have to be scripture led. And it's funny, it's right. interesting. The, the, um, you know, you mentioned the uh, the experts they bring in. In Methodist Church, they did actually have a working party of eight people who worked on a kind of report for a few years. They met up every now and then. Of those eight people, one of them had the evangelical view hmm. on that passage uh, going into hmm. it. And that person, and, 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 and of those who weren't, there were PhDs on the other side. Um, and the person who didn't, didn't have a PhD at the time. But, but that's not necessarily relevant. It's just that 
it's just interesting. It's just interesting how that those, those debates often get skewed. It, and they're always scholars you could bring out of the shelf to yeah. kind of make any of you sound like it's much more plausible than it is. There's so many scholars who say all sorts of things. And I just find that evangelicals have even fallen for that. We still cite scholars with authority. You know, I am one. Don't cite me with authority. <laughs> so, I, I haven't so, yet cited you. Well, there we are. I'm sure, I'm sure but a couple of other things I was going to say on it was just to respond to your thing. I think I what I meant by saying this is a, the women thing's a big issue is because the heart, the reason why we get to the place where we don't care so much about what women do in church vis-a-vis the New Testament um, exhortations or commands is we, we don't have a full vision of biblical complementarity. So, and that does go to marriage. So I agree with you that marriage is the thing. It's an issue to divide over. It's a huge thing. A doctrine of marriage um, is a huge thing in scripture. And, and I think the way that we talk about men and women roles works out of God's wisdom in, in biblical complementarity of men and women. And once you erode that, it, that's why it's inevitable that you end up with not caring about marriage per se, because you've already started to erode the distinction between men and women on which heterosexual marriage as a biblical theological imperative is is um, is based. That's kind of all I meant. So yeah, but I agree that there's, there's, there's differences here on how we might par- gospel partnership and these kind of things. There's also lots of caveats. With women. We could, let's, talk, let's save that for another episode anyway. But the other thing, briefly, I'll let Michael jump back in a second. Just um, you mentioned the, the big passages and you mentioned Jesus, which I agree with. I I, I tend to go to Romans 1, um, as as my kind of like, I don't go to Le- Leviticus either because that's often the kind of easy put down for the progressives. When you've mentioned Leviticus, homosexuality is an abomination, but so is shellfish and all the rest of it. It gives you this easy rhetorical retort for the for the progressive. Um, but Romans one is just unbelievably clear, where Paul says, you know, they have given up natural relations with women. Men have given up natural relations with women and become inflamed with lust for one another. Mm. And then what the liberal scholars will say, which are the ones that were cited in this report that went to help this denomination recently, um, have they, they'll just say, well, Paul was talking about a very specific first century pedestry uh, on the basis of a Roman centurion. So really it's just about the powerful over, you know, he pulls, God is, doesn't like the fact that there's, there's, you know, men in authority and power who are kind of abusing younger um you know, people without power um, against their will or whatever. And, and it's, it almost becomes a kind of a completely different thing. So you think, okay, so there's this thing called homosexuality, which is prevalent in the ancient world. Um, Paul is talking about this thing called natural relations with women, between men and women. And then he decides to talk about, as a contrast, a very specific first century Roman centurion only thing that only relates to this particular part of the world. And you just think, so, Paul, isn't there like something else that men do, like with other men? I'm just not talking about that. It's irrelevant. I just don't, no comment, absolutely no comment whatsoever. <laughs> Paul, you're talking about like everything about sin, the kind of wrath of God poured out against mankind for all like sin. And you're talking about idolatry and, and the connection to sexuality. Yeah, no, I just not, I'm just not going there. I just don't want to go there. It's going to be too difficult. I don't want to die on that hill. It's just absolutely like monstrously crazy to think mm-hmm. that Paul is not talking about it there. I mean, it's so willfully ridiculous and there's so many scholars who will do it which is why you shouldn't trust scholars including me <laughs> well on that note um that's really helpful I, I guess we're kind of in danger of kind of doing two more podcasts within this podcast <laughs> um because uh talking more about the theological kind of basis to this would be a great podcast to do talking about you know the role of men and women within the church marriage yeah. would be, be a great podcast to do uh, but bringing it back to our question about actually how to destroy a denomination like do we think this will be destructive for denominations that go this way? And if so, why? Mm. And 
And who is doing the destruction, you might say, as well, because, you know, you could put it the other way and say, well, actually, it's the evangelicals that are being destructive because they're the ones that left the Church of Scotland and they're the ones that are kicking up the bus and they should just be quiet and go along with it. Absolutely. I think um, I was saying before the show began, we were chatting, I I, I saw one of this whole mistake, this whole this whole mess actually just goes back to an autocorrect failure on a text. Somebody texted somebody else in the in the central leadership of the Methodist or the Church of Scotland saying, hey, we need to really figure out in the 21st century how to how to run a denomination properly and unfortunately you know the phone turned run into ruin and the rest <laughs> is it's history i mean a couple of things and then i hand over to i won't cite him but i'll hand over to the theologian um <laughs> but i think what's interesting when you look when you actually look at the numbers on the ground is fascinating i've long found this a mystery that if you were just going to sit if you were to sit down and you to ask yourself the question how do i how do i grow a denomination i'm not even asking spiritual questions i'm just going to do it as a, as a pure marketing exercise you know who's my target audience how do i get them in and how do we get you know bums on seats and just on a purely business perspective you would not plow the furrow that the methodists and the anglicans are because there's been a there's a big sociological piece of work done in canada a few years ago by a couple of secular uh sociologists of all of all things and uh, if i can dig it up i'll try and put a link in the show notes and it was fascinating it basically concluded that churches where people sort of i think in their language kind of really believed it um grew um, it was a pretty much a, a pretty straightforward correspondence where the where the gospel was preached, where the Bible was believed, and where the church tried to you know proclaim the good news and love the neighbours. Uh, amazing things happened, and the churches that were circling the drain were those that had gone, nah, stuff all that. Uh, we're just going to see if we can look like the culture. And I wonder if that's the key thing. If you look like the culture, why would anyone bother coming? Why would you? You know, you don't need to. I mean, if you're if you want sort of you know liberal progressivism you can just join the labor party or go on a gay pride march or any one of a thousand and one things why would yeah. you come to the church and we mentioned him a couple of times in recent episodes but but douglas murray the gay kind of atheist uh, journalist who's written a lot on these kind of issues mm. in culture he did a, a dialogue a few weeks ago with the, the christian um, theologian nt wright and that was on the unbelievable um show and again we will put a link to that in the in the show notes because it's a fascinating discussion there's a couple of points in that where it's interesting hearing douglas as an atheist who's so strong on this he really lays into justin welby the archbishop of canterbury particularly the anglican church because he's like why do you guys insist on looking the same um and he's interesting because he's clearly someone who is really searching for something and what he's searching for is not an organization is not a church that looks identical to the culture and it's interesting in that in, in that dialogue listening to a number of times where where tom where nt right would talk about the cross talk about jesus and often even tom finds with apologizing i'm sorry to bring it up again and it's douglas the atheist going, no you must not apologize you have got to talk about this and i think that's what's going to wreck it that's what's going to destroy and i'm afraid the methodist church is going down the drain and the church of scotland will eventually go the same way if it goes us through. Hopefully, there'll be congregations within it that will survive. I, I'm not a kind of of the view that says, you know, you, the evangelical should leave Methodist Church. I think evangelical should hang in there. Uh, it's their denomination. They should work hard um, to, to salvage what they can. Um, but it's going to be very, very tough um, because if you don't, if you lose the basics, if you don't preach Christ on the cross and Christ crucified, and then live that out faithfully. Um, I can see. I think at that point, I think maybe it is the judgment of God, but it's also a sociological reality. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, and I think that with Methodism, they've gone in the, the British Methodist Church has gone in the direction of trying to keep things together. So, to to what Michael said there, the um, this the issue of 
are we dividing and shouldn't we be kind of proclaiming unity um, and, and things like this? Of course, that's an easier thing for a progressive to say than it is for a conservative on an issue like this. So it's easy for someone to say, hey, I think that this aberrant um, version of marriage is okay. Um, I don't mind that you do. Why can't we exist in harmony? For the conservative, they say, no, it doesn't, doesn't work like that for me. I can't accept your thing and my thing. You have a theology which allows you to accept both. I literally don't. Otherwise, I have to completely agree with you. By saying that I think yours is equally a valid view of Scripture, I have to kind of give up my own view of Scripture. But for you, you don't have to do that and, um, because you can just say, hey, well, there's a multiple uh, variety of options. There's different contextual factors that factors here and this, this and that and the other. So I think there's issues there about how we talk about unity and reconciliation, mm. that kind of thing. And it's a challenge, of course. British Methodist Church has gone down this route for the sake of keeping it together, and there's people who want to get back to the heart. And, you know, I, I really want Methodism to be Methodism. I want them to have the um, reputation, again, that they used to have. Methodists was a slur. These people who really took their faith seriously. It's like calling someone a fanatic a Methodist. It wasn't a term of endearment. It was a term of, wow, you guys really believe this stuff. We preach on the street and like in the, in the highways and byways. You kind of get eggs thrown at you for preaching the gospel. You suffer for it. You really care about accountability and discipleship groups. Goodness me. Wow, you see the Holy Spirit move. Wow, you, you guys are Methodist. You're methodical about how you um, go about your Christian faith. And so I think that would be great if that returns. So there are evangelicals within who, who want to see that. And so I'm happy to see that as a, as a return. But I think um, the United Methodist Church in the US over this same issue recently um, has kind of moved towards a split because the conservatives won the debate over, over same-sex marriage. Um, so they won, inverted commas, but they still realized, even though they kind of won, that they were going to have to face this every year. The pressure will keep coming. So they've decided to, to split and say, look, we're not, this isn't going to be proper unity at this stage. And by the way, they only won um, because they let the Africans vote. And that's an interesting uh, caveat to all of this because the British Methodist Church did not uh, allow their African uh, brothers and sisters or others from the um, uh, beyond uh, the West to vote uh, in these in these kind of issues um, because they know what would happen, I think, because the, the, of the overwhelming conservative majority. Um, so it's interesting how race and colonialism gets uh, used differently in uh, different con conversations. Yeah, you know, Aaron, I think you make a good point on the whole on the whole race piece. You know, that I noticed that too, that the American Methodists, when they had their conference, that they had the global Methodists in and that that meant it went in a very conservative direction because our African friends and others, you know, around the world, you know, do tend to be quite frankly, more biblical following than, than some of the West. Um, and then I noticed particularly that the British Methodists did not invite the global crowd. And there were two thoughts I had on that. Well, the first was in this age of, you know, privilege, we talk a lot about, you know, white privilege and imperialism, whatever going, it actually staggered my mind that the Methodists have just engaged in theological imperialism of going, well, we know our friends in the in the majority world wouldn't vote the right way. Um, and then, you know, they're not, they're not as advanced theologically as, as we are in British Methodism. So, you know what, we'll shut the door on the suckers and we'll vote. And then eventually, you know, they'll come around to it. I mean, I can't actually think of anything more paternalistic, um, quite frankly. And then in terms of holding Methodism together, I think the same thing would happen with Anglicanism if it went this path. But I think if, if global Methodism, if, if Western Methodism goes this way, you'll see, you know, and the Methodist Church and other parts of the world break away. I think it is it is inevitable. But then the other thing, Aaron, it takes me back full circle to where we talked about evangelism. Mm. Uh, you said, I think, you felt the Methodists had gone this way because they, they want to engage evangelistically. Well, 
what concerns me is there's a huge need on our doorstep to reach Muslims. That's my big passion. We're going to have 13 million Muslims here in the UK by 2050. This issue is a disaster. I mean, I remember back in the late 1990s when I would be doing street evangelism in London, this would come up because there'd be some story about some gay Anglican vicar and my Methodist, my Muslim friends would wave that under my nose and say, see, you know, you Christians are totally corrupt. Um, Boy, that now conversation is happening in spades. And I actually feel really sorry for for Christians either in this country or other parts of the world who want to reach out to their Muslim neighbours to have Muslims go, oh, you know, look at you Christians. Uh, You know, you are utterly immoral. And whether that is just willful Methodist church and going, ah, you know, stuff them. We don't care about the Muslims. Who cares? Or that's the cruel interpretation. The kinder interpretation is they are so clueless. Mm. They haven't stopped and thought that one through mm. in their attempt to pursue i don't know they want to reach people in their 20s in the uk who are probably never going to set foot in the methodist church anyway they have nor perhaps the biggest mission field on their doorstep that's a wonderful point i mean I, that is an amazing one if you're listening that's a great one to repeat if you're in a conversation with someone because i think that compete the competing um yeah issues of uh, what are you most scared of are you most scared of being islamophobic or homophobic and that's sort of those sort of competing there's a kind of the people have done that kind of thing under the hierarchy of different um, different issues um and, and i think that's something that you know that needs to be borne in mind because i think if people are really sincere about caring about reaching their culture they would be happy to be to lean conservative on certain issues to reach certain groups, as you say, just like Muslims, which is really interesting. I think the final point to, to mention would probably be off the back of what you said, there's no evidence of a denomination that has embraced uh, a kind of unmooring of scriptural authority and flourished for beyond a generation. Um, so, of course, there's huge denominations um, which continue to pl- chug along but they're not they don't continue to grow and flourish evangelistically there just isn't any evidence in the world of that happening um in in, in any kind of consistent way over generations so i think that's worth bearing in mind if you happen to, if we do have any domination leaders who are, who are listening and are kind of hmm, maybe we could uh, go in this direction uh, well anyway i hope well we would have had michael now doing his kind of closing outro um given that he was this was his first time hosting the show in a while but clearly it was too much for him or that aeroplane going past his house um, was had the Methodist Church on the side of it, or the Church of Scotland uh, combined. And, and they've grabbed him. Well. He's, he's <laughs> gone. He uh, has disappeared <laughs> from this recording. So. <laughs> we, we got off the hook, so we're okay. But yeah, um, uh, sadly, Michael's not here. He disappeared um, to, to kind of uh, say goodbye to you all, so it, it falls upon us to do so. Um, and uh, I hope you've found it a helpful episode, and hopefully... Uh, myself, Aaron Edwards, Andy Bannister, and indeed, perhaps even Michael Ott will be with us for the next episode. Bye for now. See you next time.